You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, Happy New Year. New Year to all of you. I hope your uh, New Year's resolutions are off to a good start, or as the uh, El Arroyo sign called them this week, your January to-do list. hope that's uh, going well for you. Uh, I am excited about uh, uh, what 2015 will hold for us as a church as we walk with God, as we trust Him uh, together. Uh, one of the things we're going to do as a church over the next three months is continue in the book of Romans. Uh, our plan is to finish Romans uh, the week before Easter, and then we'll uh, begin something uh, else after Easter. Uh, and today we're in Romans chapter 9, as you can tell, uh, which is arguably uh, the hardest chapter in the book of Romans because it deals with this little topic of election with God's sovereign choice uh, and salvation. And so we thought we would start off the new year with a lighthearted topic like that. We figure if we can deal with election and get that figured out on the first Sunday of the year, the rest of the year is going to be a piece of cake, right? And so I don't know how I had happened to draw this chapter when we were divvying up sermons, uh, but I did. And so here I am. I guess God chose me uh, for this. And so um, Romans 9 Chapter 9, 10, and 11 is a difficult section of the book. Uh, Tom Wright says, Many people see Romans as a book of eight chapters of gospel at the beginning and five chapters of application at the end and then three chapters of puzzle uh, in the middle and and 9 through 11. And and, and I agree, it it is a puzzling section of Romans, and yet there are huge things that we need to understand about God and about ourselves in these three chapters. And so our plan is over the next three weeks just to take one week per chapter and deal with sort of one big topic with each chapter. And so today we're dealing in chapter 9 with God's sovereign purpose. Uh, Next week in chapter 10, we'll look at at the scope of God's mission. Uh, And then the following week in chapter 11, we'll look at how God has formed his people. All right, so God's purpose, God's mission, God's people over the next three weeks. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, Turn, uh, if you're not already there in your Bible, to Romans chapter 9, because we're going to do some hard work in these verses, and and I want you to see them. So pull it up on your phone, iPad. Uh, The Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 139 in the New Testament. Uh, You'll want to see this text as we look at it together today. Some of you, uh, probably all of you, remember the, the often tense childhood experience of picking teams like on the playground, like for a game of kickball, maybe a game of pickup basketball. Uh, Two captains stand across from everyone else, and they begin selecting their team. And uh, the good athletes always go first because the captains aren't stupid, right? They're they're, they're picking in such a way to help their cause because they want to win the game. And I remember when I was a kid, if it was pickup basketball, I always got picked early in the the picking process because I was tall. And, and, And they were like, I want that guy because surely he, he's tall. Surely he's good at basketball. And uh, what a disappointment I must have been uh, to all those captains uh, through the years. Because I was more of a football guy, so uh, I, I just like to foul people. It's like, can you shoot? No, but I can foul. You know, do we need anybody to foul on our team? And uh, that was kind of my experience. Now, these, uh, these early experiences with picking teams, I think, are just one of our myriad of experiences that have that have shaped our understanding of selection, of choosing. In our mind, we tend to link selection to merit, don't we? And we see it all the time. Like the NFL, during the draft, they, a team will pick the next best player available to help them win. Right? A company chooses the interview candidate 
who seems to be the best candidate because she's the one who's going to make the company most profitable. They give her the job. The fraternity or the sorority, uh, they select certain people who they think are going to make their club better, and they cut the rest. The university, uh, they take the applicants who have the best grades, the best test scores, and they send rejection letters to all the other applicants, right? The bachelor gives the rose to the woman that he finds most attractive or he thinks is going to most fulfill him. I'm sure that always works out uh, really good. See, choosing, selecting, picking, it, it goes on all the time in all sorts of ways in our life. And the grounds for selecting one person over the other person are usually the merits of the one person over the other. Like, which one is a better fit? Which one is a better choice? What do they bring to the table? What do they offer that the other choices don't offer? And we accept this grounds for choosing because, by and large, it seems fair, doesn't it? Now, when we come to Romans 9, we need to be honest. Uh, I think that we bring all of our past experiences, all of our assumptions about merit and fairness into our reading of a text like this. Like, we don't come as blank slates with, with no opinion at all about how someone should be chosen or selected. We like merit because merit makes sense to us. And then we read Romans 9, and it messes with us because it, it seems to say that God's way of choosing is not like that, which is why Romans 9 tends to bother us and make us feel kind of tense. So let's look at Romans 9 together. I want you to see the setup of this chapter in verses one through five. The setup is really important because the setup raises a question that needs to be answered, and Paul is going to answer it uh, in the rest of the verses that we'll look at. Look at it. uh, Look at the emotion that he expresses in verses one through five. Paul's writing, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, because Israel was called God's firstborn son. To them belong the glory, because they had seen the glory of God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. To them belong the covenants, because they had received the covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with David. To them belong the giving of the law, because they had received God's revealed word. To them belongs the worship, because they had the priest and the sacrificial system and the ways to approach God. To them belong the promises, because they had received the promise of the Messiah and the new covenant in Him. To them belong the patriarchs, like Abraham Isaac, Jacob, and from their race, from their flesh, from their ethnicity, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the promised one who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, do you feel the, do you feel the emotion, the deep emotion in what Paul is saying here? He's saying, God, I don't get it. Like, my people have had all these advantages all these privileges. They've been waiting on the Christ. They've had all these clues, and they've missed him. Like, for the most part, they've rejected him. They're separated from him. Have you failed in your promises, God? This breaks my heart. So Paul, and I love this, because Paul is not some sort of academic, cold-hearted theologian here, is he? 
Like, he, he, he really deeply cares for his people. In fact, he says something very Jesus-like here. He says, if I could, I'd trade places with them. I'd substitute myself for them so they could know and experience the mercy of Christ that I've experienced. Now, Paul is about to talk about God's sovereign choosing and salvation, but I want you to notice that he's not flippant about this, right? He feels it very deeply, very personally. I think we need to pause and just say this. Many of you have, have prayed your guts out. You've prayed diligently for years for somebody that you care about or a bunch of somebody that you care about that they would come to Christ. You, you thought, I love them and I want them to know the deep joy and, and, and grace and mercy and freedom that I know in Christ. And you've just prayed and you've prayed and they've, they've, they've heard the gospel, they've been exposed to Jesus, and yet they still reject him and it breaks your heart. And I just want you to know from this text that this kind of grief is real and this kind, of, this kind of grief is godly because Paul feels it. And keep praying your guts out. Keep praying your guts out for those people. In Romans, Paul has been unfolding this full presentation of the gospel and now he comes to this point where the unbelief of Israel, like his people, the unbelief of them is a huge problem for them, for him. Because how could they, of all people, not recognize the Messiah? How could they, of all people, have missed the Christ? How could they reject him? And so the question is, has God failed to deliver on his promise? Like, Has God's salvation plan been thwarted? Has his purpose been thrown off? And so Paul begins to answer that dilemma by pointing to God's sovereign, elective purpose, which is our big idea for today. And so I want to do just two things. I want to spend a few minutes looking at the big idea, God's electing purpose, his sovereign purpose. And then I want to end by looking at some potential responses that you and I might have to that big idea. All right, so first, the big idea, God's electing purpose. Has God's promise failed? Does the case of Israel make us think, has, has, has the purpose of salvation failed? Well, look at verse 6, verse 6 through 9. The answer is obviously no. And that's what he says in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the promise of God has failed. Uh, but not all, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not all ch- are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return to you, Abraham, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And that son was to be named Isaac. So apparently, when you read this text, uh, there is an Israel within Israel. It's like two concentric circles. You have the larger outer circle, and you have a smaller inner circle. So there's ethnic Israel with all their privileges and advantages that we just read about, And then there's spiritual Israel who have been changed inwardly by the grace of God. There's the physical descendants of Abraham, outer circle, and then there there are those who will receive the promises of the inheritance given to Abraham, inner circle. And we see God making a distinction here, don't we? We see God choosing. And that's all I want you to see in this illustration of Isaac here. Because remember, Abraham had two sons. His first son was named Ishmael. He was 14 years older than his little brother, Isaac. 
and, 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 God's, and God had told Abraham that his promises were not going to come through Ishmael, but they were going to come through Isaac, who wasn't even born yet. So God chose Isaac over Ishmael. This is what Ray Ortland says about this. He says, God blessed, God blessed selectively, not automatically. God always does exactly what he intends to do. His mercy is up to him. See, see God's purpose to bring about salvation to the world uh, was sourced in his own will, in his own will alone. And it was brought about, it was brought to fruition by his own will, in his own will alone. He accomplished it in the very way he intended to accomplish it. He accomplished it selectively or electively. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. No. He gives another illustration in verse 10 through 13. Paul points to the two twin boys that are going to be born to Isaac, so the next generation. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, that was Abraham's wife, when Rebekah had conceived children, they were twin boys, by one man, Abraham, our forefather, or by by one man, I'm sorry, Rebekah is Isaac's wife. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though these twins were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We read that verse 13, we hear that line, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and it totally messes with our sensibilities, doesn't it? Because what in the world does that mean? Would God hate a little baby before the baby was even born? What is he even talking about? Hate. This is a Hebrew idiom uh, that, that Paul is using here. It was, it was an idiom that dealt with preference or choosing. We see Jesus use this, uh, this same idiom in Luke 14 uh, when he says that if you come to me and don't hate your family, you can't be my disciple. And he's not saying that you have to have it in for mom and dad. Like, you got to despise mom and dad. What he's saying is, if you come to me, you got to choose me over, my, over your family if you want to be my disciple. And so what this is saying in Romans 9 is that God chose Jacob, not Esau. Before they were born, before they'd ever done anything good or bad, before you could ever make any kind of distinction between the two of them, because they were, remember, they were twins. They were in the womb at the same time. God chose Jacob. Why did he choose Jacob? Look at verse 11 again. Though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? In order that God's purpose of election would continue or stand or remain. I want you to feel the weightiness of this phrase. A lot of times we want to know why God does things that he does, and most of the time we don't get answers. He's giving us a why here, and I want you to feel the weight of that. He's giving us an answer. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? So that his purpose according to election would stand. In the original language, according to election comes before purpose, and so election is actually an adjective describing his purpose. So we could say so that God's electing purpose or his choosing purpose would stand, would remain, would keep going. 
Now, there are a couple things in this verse that we see about God's electing purpose. Number one, it's not because of works. See where it says that in verse 11? It's, the, it's not based on works. The basis of God's choice is not human works, like not even future works. It's not like God looked far off into the future and said, you know what? I think that Esau guy is going to be a real jerk someday, and, and Jacob's going to be a pretty good guy, so I'm going to choose Jacob. It's not how it is. In fact, both of those guys, you know how it turned out, neither of them were very lovable, Right? I mean, Esau was just a reckless guy driven by his appetites. He did not value the right types of things in life. He traded his birthright with his brother for, for a bowl of stew because he was real hungry. It's like, man, I don't care about my birthright. I'm starving. Give me that bowl of stew. And Jacob was the perfect guy to do it because Jacob was a deceiver. He was conniving. He was always arranging things for his own advantage, even if it meant lying. Neither of these guys was, were lovable. And yet... That didn't matter because that was not the basis of God's uh, choosing. Uh, God's choice here was not based on any human merit. God's election is not based on deeds in any way, in any way. Not deeds already done, not deeds left undone, not future deeds not yet done. It's not based on that at all. Now, what is the basis of God's choice here? Look what it says at the end of verse 11. Not because of works or not based on works, but based on Him. Based on Him. Based on Him who calls. God's electing purpose, according to this, continues because of God. God's promises are fulfilled because of God, because of His sovereign choice, because of His will. See, the grounds for God's election is God. That's what makes God, God. Paul uses this word purpose in other places in the New Testament. Um, we saw it in Ephesians 1 in our uh, profession of faith today. I want you to see what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Keep your hand in uh, Romans 10 and turn over to 2 Timothy 1, about 50 pages to the right. 2 Timothy 1, I just want you, because this will illumine a little bit what he's saying in Romans 9. And this is hard stuff, so I want to bring as much illumination to it as we can. 2 Timothy 1. Verse 9, and then we'll jump back to Romans 9 here in a minute. 2 Timothy 1, 9. You'll see this word purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So if you work backwards in that verse, we see that God's purpose is eternal. It's always existed. It always will exist. It cannot be thwarted. God chose you before there was a you. And then secondly, you see that, continuing to work backwards, God's purpose is eternally connected to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not an afterthought. It wasn't like nothing was working out, so God was like, oh, what am I going to do next? All right, um, how about the Jesus thing? That's not, that's not how it worked. You were connected to Christ eternally before the Son of God ever became incarnate in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then God's purpose rules out works as the basis of his saving us, if we see that. So he saves you and me. He calls us not because of anything in us, but because of his own gracious will. This is exactly what's being said back in Romans 9. So, if you go back to Romans 9, God didn't choose you because of your own merit, like he was picking teams. You know what? I'll take her. She looks like she'd be a really good Bible study leader. I want her on my team, right? I'm going to pick that guy because he doesn't sin very much. He keeps most of the rules. It's not how it works. I'll take, I'll take that guy. He's a really good theologian, and man, what am I going to do without good theologians? That's not how God's selection works. It's not based on our merit or anything in us. It's based on God. And so here's the big idea of Romans 9. Let me just spell it out. God chooses to save people, not because of any good works in them or any merit on their part. God chooses to save people solely because of his own sovereign grace and will. That's the reason God's promises are unbreakable. That's the reason his purpose can never fail, because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. And God's sovereign choice is what makes his eternal purpose work. Remember what the burden of this chapter was, the, the, the dilemma, the question of this chapter? God, why is it that so many people in Israel are rejecting Christ? Has your plan, have your, has your promises failed? No. God has always redeemed and always redeemed his people and always will redeem his people. He fulfills his saving purpose by his sovereign, merciful choosing. Now, that's the big idea. What's your response to that? You can talk about, well, you can't talk about election without all sorts of feelings and emotions, without all sorts of questions and thoughts running through your mind. Uh, in fact, it, for me, it's been one of those weeks where I've woken up in the middle of the night, like several times, thinking about all this. And so if y'all, if y'all want to get me some overtime, I've worked at 3 a.m. Several, several nights this week. I was working in bed, uh, tossing and turning. Uh, because the doctrine of election is really difficult. It's difficult to understand And it may be difficult for you to accept. And so what's your response to this? I would say if it bothers you, don't push away from the Bible and say, I'm never going back to that chapter again. Because we can't just outright reject the things we don't like in the Bible. If we want to catch the whole God, we've got to see all of God's revealed word, even if we don't get it. Now, over the years, I've seen several responses in myself and in others that are not always good to this doctrine of election and not always helpful. And so what I want to do, what I want to end with is I want to look at a few of these possible responses uh, and then offer maybe a better way uh, in each of these, okay? And and I thought of like 10 or 12 of these this week, and I'm I'm only going to do a few of them uh, because there's no way you can cover all of that ground, but I I want to hit on a few of them. Here's the first potential response that you might feel. I think election could cause us to accuse God of injustice. But we ought to worship him for his mercy. See, I think the immediate response that most Americans have to this is that's not fair. Right? I mean, I was Friday night, my 13-year-old daughter and I were talking about this in the kitchen. And she said to me, so if God chose me and he didn't choose someone else, isn't that unfair? And I was like, Jessica, that is a great question. And you are feeling the weight and the difficulty of this topic. 
And I think the deeper question is not, is, is, God unf- is this unfair? Is, is God just? Like, is, it, is he right in choosing this way? And Paul anticipates the objection. Look at verse 14. He anticipates that we might accuse God of injustice. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. It's like verse 11, on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul answers this question uh, by mentioning two things from the book of Exodus. First, in verse 15, he talks about Moses. He says, you know, God told Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, which that's from Exodus chapter 33. Now, right before that, in Exodus chapter 32, you know what happened? God's people built a golden calf, and they began to worship the golden calf. God had delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they made a statue of a calf, and they began to bow down to it and say, that's our God that brought us out of Egypt. They rebelled against God. They turned against the one true God in idolatry. And But Moses interceded for them and said, God, will you forgive them? And God forgave them. God showed them mercy. Now, the second thing Paul brings up here is Pharaoh. And if you remember the book of Exodus… Uh, You remember that Pharaoh was the king in Egypt, and he was in a battle of sovereignty with the one true God. He had set himself up as a god, and and he was rebelling against and hardening himself against the one true God. Over and over and over and over again, he was saying, my will, not God's will, uh, be done. And so God actually handed him over to his own stubbornness and his own self-worship, and he was hardened even further. See, the Bible never says that God hardens anyone who hasn't first hardened themselves to God. But God just lets him go, and he's hardened. So God shows mercy and compassion to the Israelites who had rebelled against him, and God hardens Pharaoh who rebelled against him. Is that unjust? Is that unfair? And Paul's answer is no way, by no means Look at verse 16 again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't have anything to do with justice or fairness. Because if God treated us with fairness, with justice, as our sins deserved, He would have to judge all of us, wouldn't He? He would have judged the Israelites in the same way He had judged Pharaoh. The basis of God working savingly with sinners is not his justice. The basis of his his saving sinners is his mercy. And so we should never accuse God of injustice. Instead, we should worship him for his mercy. We should thank him for his amazing mercy. Now, a second response possibly to this doctrine of election is that election could cause us to maybe challenge God as if we know better than God or as if we would do it better than God, when instead we should, we should allow God to be God. Look at verse um, 19. 
you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back, to talk back to God? Will will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So Paul is not rebuking someone who asks honest questions of God. He's rebuking someone who arrogantly talks back to God, who answers back. This word answers back means to contradict God. And he references two passages from the book of Isaiah here to, to bring light, shed light on what he's saying. Uh, first, he references Isaiah 29, 16. This is what it, Isaiah says. Isaiah says to the people of God, you turn things upside down. You, you get things flip-flopped as if the potter were like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? So see, the people of God had had flipped things upside down as if they were like God. They They tried to reverse the roles, acting like they knew better than God, more than God. They weren't allowing God to be God. And then Isaiah 45 verse 9 says this, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, who argues with his maker. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? The people of God were arguing with God. They were saying, God, basically, you're doing it wrong. And whenever we argue with God in this way, in a sense, we are acting as if we have omniscience. In a sense, we are acting as if everything would be better if we were the sovereign, because we'd do it right. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. It's okay to be perplexed by God. It's, It's okay to be baffled by chapters like Romans 9, uh, and to say, God, you know, I, I don't understand your ways here. I don't understand what you're doing. In fact, it's a good sign if you are, because it, it's a good sign that you're actually dealing with the real God. Because <laughs> if you don't have a God who can challenge you, uh, if you don't have a God who can cause you to struggle, who can challenge your views of the universe in some way, then how do you know you're not just dealing with a figment of your own imagination and not the real God? So wrestle with God. Struggle with God. Ask God to help you to understand. But don't tell him he's wrong, and don't tell him you do it better because you understand how the universe should work. See what I'm saying? It's a humility. Another possible response to election is that it could cause us possibly to speak with certainty where we ought to say mystery, right? We're tempted to do that. We're we're tempted often to speak with certainty when we ought to just close our mouth and say, that's a mystery. Uh, Over the years uh, of doing ministry, one thing I've noticed is that Christians love to debate about election, right? Christians want to talk about predestination, right? I noticed this in college ministry over the years. I could have a Bible study over at a fraternity house and put up signs, say, you know, this week we're talking about John 13 and how we ought to love one another, and there'd be like three guys that would trickle in. The next week is like, we're going to talk about predestination at chapter Bible study this week, and the room would be full, right? Because guys who don't even care about the Bible want to show up and figure that puzzle out. Talk about the end times, talk about predestination, everybody's coming to that. It's funny how we want to get all our theological ducks in a row about election, but I've never been in a debate in Bible study about how we can love our neighbors better, right? Nobody's debating that. It's like we are bored by the clear commands of Scripture, but we want to argue the difficult text. 
And there's something in us that makes us want to take one of the hardest subjects of the Bible to understand and then systematize it in such a way that our, our position is so airtight that there's no longer any loose ends, no longer any mystery in it. And when we do that, we're being arrogant uh, because we can't know the mind of God. We can't see all that he sees. John Calvin actually warned against this. You know, John Calvin always gets associated with predestination and election, like he's the only guy that ever talked about it, right? And if you read Calvin's Institutes, he actually doesn't talk about it until about page 950, right? It's not his lead foot. He talks about prayer and lots of other things before he ever gets to election. But he actually warned against what he called excessive curiosity and trying to figure out predestination or election, This is what he said. He said, don't get to the point where mystery, you've removed the mystery, right? You can't ever get there. But but he said, on the other hand, you you can't ignore it because it's revealed in the Bible. And I think this is a helpful quote from him about, about how we should approach this topic when we're talking about it. Calvin said, I desire them to admit that we should not investigate what the Lord has left hidden in secret. If the Lord hides it, don't go try to uncover it is what he's saying. And we should not neglect what he has brought out into the open, like what we've got here today in front of us in Romans 9. Don't neglect it. So that we may not be convicted of excessive curiosity on the one hand or of excessive ingratitude on the other hand. In other words, in your conversations about election, don't go beyond what the Bible reveals and says, right? Don't go beyond that. When you get to the end of that, just say, mystery. I don't get it. I don't understand. Right? One more, one more potential response that we might have to election, and that is that election could, po- could possibly unsettle us in our soul. Uh, but it ought, to, it ought to bring deep comfort to us, not unsettledness. I want to read verse 16 one more time. Look at verse 16. If I can find it. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do I have a will, and do the exertions of my will matter? Yes. Does my will and do the exertions of my will, can those in any way overrule God or trump God or cause His purposes to be thwarted in some way? No. No. Because only, only one of us can be ultimate. Only one of us can, can, can be God. And so according to this, God's purpose is not dependent upon my will or my works. That's incredibly comforting to me. Because if all I have to trust in is my own fickle will, I'm on pretty shaky ground. But I have something unshakable, something invincible to trust in, and that is our sovereign, merciful God whose plans and promises never fail. It's so comforting. I'll tell you another thing that's comforting. God is sovereign, but he's not sovereign in a way that's distant or removed, right? He's sovereign, but he's very intimately involved. He's not like a, a puppet master pulling the strings outside uh, of history. In fact, he didn't stand outside of history at all. He, he, he waded into history, into the death, into the destruction, into the rebellion, into the evil, into the sin in order to save people. His eternal purpose, according to this, was to show his mercy 
to sinners to put his mercy on display so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And what is his name? Exodus 34. His name is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For that God to fulfill his eternal purpose, it was going to cost him, it was going to cost him dearly. It was going to cost him his own son. See, the cost of God showing us mercy was that Jesus Christ would be treated mercilessly. I mean, what wondrous, scandalous love is that? That the sovereign of the universe who made us would sacrifice himself for us. Sacrificial sovereignty? Doesn't make sense. Sacrificial mercy? Will you, will you receive the mercy of God? Like, would you trust in Jesus and by doing so say, God, I receive your mercy? There is eternal comfort in the mercy of God that can only come from Him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.